Good morning. I don't know how y'all sit there every week and not sing along. I finally heard some people starting to mouth it off, and I'm just because I'm up here on stage and other people are watching me, but y'all feel free to sing along. That's that's a classic, okay? That's you hear that in church? I wanted the music team to sing it one of these weeks, but they said it anyway. Anyway, welcome to the well here at STSA. My name is Father Anthony. We are in part five of a series called Family Matters, whereas the song that we just lipped sing to right there talks about is that we are family and we believe that as a church, we are not just a people, a group of people who meet on Sundays, but we are a family. And we may not be a blood family, but we're a more than blood family because we're a blood of Christ family. We're not like a personality similarity family. We're like a spirit of God unites us similarity kind of a family. And we believe that our eternal family, which is the church, can bear greater significance and impact on our life than our actual, our bio, biological family. And I believe, like I told you all in the very beginning of this series, is that you look at someone like Little Orphan Annie, and she had biological parents who impacted her, and then she was adopted by a rich, 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 rich man, and into his home she moved. And now that she was in his home, his family, that family, has the power to redefine her life, no matter what she came into that family with. Well, our church family has the same power, that if we understand who we are as a church and what it means to be part of the church and this church, and that has the power to redefine our lives and give new meaning to everything that we do. We are going through the definition of what it means to be a member of this church because we are talking about our church's core values. All right, just run through these real quick. We got 10 core values. Every week we're talking about one on Sundays and then one in life groups. Let's just go recap real, real, real quick. All right, the first one of them is limitless acceptance. Actually, you say, the first one is Limitless acceptance, we talked about that, about how every single person we accept as we have been accepted. We don't just accept people, okay, for whoever they are, but we try to accept and then bring them into something deeper. And that's our second core value. What's our second core value? It is authentic community, very good. Because that we believe that we don't want superficial here and we don't want superficial here. Our relationship with God should not be superficial and with one another should not be superficial because the two are connected. So therefore, we have this strong family. But then the goal is not just to be a group of people like a country club that bonds with each other and plays racquetball and has cookies together. But we believe that the purpose, the center of our existence is what? It is transformational communal worship that we gather around the table of the Lord. That's the center of our family. That's the most important part of it. And then we worship together every Sunday. But we don't stop worshiping on Sundays, right? We're not just a Sunday-only Christian. We believe our fourth core value is Passionate pursuit. Are y'all getting weak? Might have to go back and start over. Our fourth core value is passionate pursuit of God. And as I told y'all, y'all can't say passionate pursuit. Passionate. Okay, we're talking about passion. We're people who desire to get closer to God and we pursue him passionately, not just on Sundays, but on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday, through our Bible, through our prayer, through our giving, through our fellowship, everything we do. And then the whole point of that is that gets us to a place of spiritual maturity. How will we measure our spiritual maturity? We'll measure it by Christ-like integrity. It's not what we know that makes us mature. It's how we obey, and it's the lives that we live. And the life of Christ is the model that we are trying to get to. And that life of Christ, now we're on the backside of the, of the mountain, is that once we scale that first side and we're living this life of community and fellowship and worship and passionate pursuit and Christ-like integrity, now we'll start to see the fruits of that on the other side of the mountain. And the sixth core value is? Faith-filled vision. We believe in a big God. And we rely on that big God to do extraordinary things in our lives and in our church and in our community. And one of the measures of spiritual maturity, in my opinion, is the faith with which we handle the different circumstances of life with. 
Next fruit that we're going to talk about is the one we talked about last week. The fruit of irrational generosity. That's core value number seven. We're foolish people. We're irrational, illogical people. We think it is actually more blessed to give than to receive. And we will practice that, not just with our time, but with our money. We will, as the expression goes, put our money where our mouth is. And we will be rich givers, okay? And we will be very good at giving. So we're, not the, we're the kind of people who are so irrational that we think $90 with God versus $100 without God, we'll take the 90. And 90 is actually greater than 100. That's how irrational we are around here. That's what we left off last week. And then the eighth core value, which you should have talked about in your life group this past Sunday, is faithful stewardship of talents and gifts. And let's read that together, what that says. Read it with me. We believe that each one of us is entrusted by God with specific talents and gifts. It is our duty to use those gifts to further Christ's mission on earth. So we are irrationally generous with our money. We're also irrationally generous with our time. But we're also faithful with our gifts. And I truly believe, and I hope you do as well, okay, in our life group, we talked about this. And we went around and everyone shared like what maybe God may have called them to this church for. And everyone said, you know, I kind of have this gift and I kind of have this gift. And I went around the room and I was like, except for, there's only one person, okay, who said he had the gift of discouragement. That's what he said his gift was. I was like, okay, that guy's like me. But everyone else in there, okay, everyone else had very different gifts than me. And I'm like, don't you see how if you weren't here in this church, then like the church wouldn't be the same because I don't have that gift. Now you don't have my gift, so the church wouldn't be the same without me, but also wouldn't be the same without you because we all have different gifts and we complete each other. And just because someone's on stage with the lights and the microphone doesn't make them any more important than the person who's talking to the, the, the sad person in the back. We all have different gifts. And we will not be spiritual consumers. We will be spiritual contributors in the church. We don't come with a consumeristic mindset. The ninth core value, which we're not going to talk about today, gets into the pillar of evangelism and witnessing, which is personal call to evangelism. Read it with me. We believe that the call to evangelism and witnessing applies to us just as much as it did to the apostles in the early church. God will hold me accountable to its completion. We did a series earlier this year called Mission Witness. where We talked about the different ways that we evangelize. And we talked about evangelism isn't necessarily preaching, okay, and hitting people over there with the Bible and saying, repent, okay, lest you be destroyed. It's not, that's not, we talked about evangelism as sharing the good news. And there's different ways that we do it. We are the kind of people around here who I believe, and I hope you believe too, that we have something good here. And if you find something good, right, isn't this what our, what our moms used to do when our, this before the internet and all that stuff? When our mom went to, to, to Magruder's and found a sale on tomatoes, she went and called the whole neighbors, okay, and said, there's a sale over here, and the tomatoes are half price, and they're two for one or whatever, because she found something good, and she wanted to share it. Well, that's what we, I feel like we have something really good here in this church, and it's our duty not to bring others to Christ, but to bring Christ to others and share what we have. We have lots of resources here in the church because we kind of define evangelism as inviting people to be part of this. So whether that is sharing the YouTube videos. Okay, this is why we record these videos. This is an easy way that you can share with a coworker who's going through a thing. You say, I don't know how to invite them to church, but you can say, here, I heard this sermon. I think this would be helpful for you. And then they may say, hey, who's that guy? And I come, there, there's a way. Whether it is, um, we have friends and family day. Okay, we do that three times a year. Yes, we have friends and family day three times a year, okay? He's evangelizing, he's witnessing to the poor guy next to him, okay? <laughs> well, hopefully he's his father, okay? Friends and family day. And we got lots of more fun stuff coming in 2018, ways to evangelize. And let me just kind of take a brief pause right here, and I'm going to tell you another tool that's going to be, we're going to be distributing and making available to you all next week that you can use as an evangelism tool, because that's actually what it was created for, and that is... A great book that is coming out. 
which would be on, which retails for $15.99, but you can get it for 10 bucks. Look, this is very important. I wrote a book, but that's not about me and money and all that stuff. The point is, I've already, I, the book will be available next Sunday, retail $15.99, but STSA, right here, you get it for 10 bucks. Okay, no shipping, no nothing, you get it for 10 bucks. Next Sunday, you come and you get it. Every single person, I got my first package of them just like on Wednesday, so I got to see it in my own hands, and they sent me a box of 30 of them. And I've given it to some people, okay, along the way. Every person that I give it to, I give two. One to read, and one to give to someone else. And that's the way you're going to approach this book as well. Because the point isn't that you say, this is very nice, Father. And it's not the point is that. The point is that you take this and you benefit from it and then you give to someone else. So everyone can come next week, okay, and you're ready to get two. One for yourself, okay, and one for somebody else in your office, whatever it may be. The point is we all have a part to do in sharing the good news. Hopefully this book, all the stuff that we said can be tools along that way. Let's get back to our core values. We talked about the first nine. Today, we're going to talk about number 10. And I know I say every week that it's my favorite one, but this is one of my top favorites, my top 10 favorites of the core values, okay, we're going to share about today. And that is genuine love for community. Read it with me. Genuine love for community says this. We bleed with love for the community around us, especially those who are without Christ. We don't just care about spiritual needs, but physical, emotional, and social needs as well. We seek to be a true blessing to the community in whatever way we can. This core value is the natural outpouring of the first nine. And that's why it's appropriate that it comes as number 10. Because if you're living the community, the acceptance, the worship, the passionate pursuit, the integrity, the faith, the general, if you're living all of those, the natural outpouring, the natural fruit of it is genuine love for community. Let me ask you a question. Put your thinking caps on. What's the goal of Christianity? If you had to put like a, like distill it all down for me. Like what's the goal of everything we do? What's the purpose of it? Well, when, when Christ came, okay, like to make us his followers, like what's the end intended in mind? Like what does he want from us ultimately? Is the goal to just like be good? Is that the goal? Is the goal to go to church on Sundays? Is the goal to like tithe like I talked about last week? Is the, like, what is the goal? If you had to kind of like break it down and tell me what's the goal. Some people would say the goal is avoid doing bad things. If the goal of Christianity is to avoid doing bad things, that's like saying the goal of marriage is to avoid cheating on my wife. There's more. What's the purpose? Some people say the goal is to believe. Okay, but the scripture teaches us that even the demons believe in God. Some people say the goal is to be saved. I say, okay, but the whole purpose that Christ came is to save us, and then like, that's it? Then like, okay, so now I'm saved, and like I live the rest 50, 60, 70 years of my life, and just like, what was the purpose of it? Was something that happened many, many years ago? Like to be born into God's family? Like that's the purpose? What's the purpose of it all? And why is it that we're still here? This question is super important. Because if you believe that God created you, and I hope you do, then you have to know that it was for a purpose, and there's an end in, in sight, an end in mind. I would say Romans chapter 8, verse 29 helps give us a clue and shed some light on what's the purpose of Christianity. It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. Conformed to the image of his son. The goal of everything in Christianity is Christ. That we would be Christ. That the way he talked, we would talk. The way he treated his parents, we would treat our parents. 
The way that he dealt with his enemies, we would deal with our enemies. The goal is Christ. So we have a defined goal. It's not ambiguous. It's not like just be good and like, how do I know when I'm done being good? The goal is Christ. And until my thoughts, my worry, my words, my dealings, until it's Christ, I'm, that's what I'm driving towards. That's the top of the mountain is the image of Christ, to be exactly as Christ. St. John said the same thing in slightly different words. He said, 1 John 2, 6, he said, he who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You see, what I want to say is this, okay, then I'll jump into today's message. If all you say is that the goal of Christ's work, the goal of Christ was to die for us, okay, which is probably what most people would say, the goal was like for Christ to die on the cross. That's like saying, like, I'm, I'm, I've been serving now as a priest 16 years, okay, and let's say I serve another, let's say I get to, my goal is 40, okay, if I get to 40, then I retire, okay, that's kind of like my goal, everything, everything is done in 40 years, it's like holy, okay, so my goal is 40 years, let's say I get to my 40th, and I preach, and I say, this is this sermon I'm going to give, and I give this great sermon, would you say that that sermon, no matter how great it was, is like the point of my life was that sermon? I would say that sermon, no matter how important it was, no matter how great it was, is built upon the entire life of the last 40 years. So you can't separate the work of Christ on the cross from everything Christ did leading up to the cross, and even really, as we know, after the cross. So what did Christ do when he came to this earth? John, his disciple, says one of the most important verses, John chapter 1 verse, chapter 1, verse 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I'm going to break it down and I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that God became one of us and dwelt among us. Okay, we're going to do this thing like a who, what, where, when, how, why. Okay, you see it on your handout. It's kind of like what happened, why it happened, and then how it happened. So the what is that God became one of us and dwelt among us. He didn't just come and teach good teachings. Like Jesus was not just a good teacher. Jesus was not just a famous rabbi. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. That God, in order to save us, in order to do whatever he wants to do, became one of us. And like if we were sitting here, he sat here. And if we were born of a woman, I'm going to be born of a woman. And if we bled when we got cut, I'm going to bleed when I get cut. Like everything you are, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to dwell among you. Why? That's the next question. Why he did that? To show us who God is and who we are called to be. To show us who God is and who we are called to be. Meaning, he didn't just send us the Bible to tell us nice things about him. He didn't just send us letters to say, this is what we should do. He became one of us. Like I said, bled, sat, born of a woman, like everything we do, everything that we go through, he came and did it like us to show us who he is and who we are called to be. Jesus cleared the air on all the misconceptions about who God is. And Jesus came to say, before me, Jesus came to say, before, before me, there was a lot of curiosity and there was a lot of guessing about who God is. And I'm coming to tell you the truth of who God is. He had a discussion one time with Philip. Philip came to Jesus. Okay, after Jesus had been ministering and living with his disciples for three years, Philip came and said, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Show us the Father. Tell us who God is. Like, don't, don't, don't beat around the bush. Just tell us plainly about God. And Jesus, 
little taken aback, says, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And you can imagine Philip hearing this being like, My bad, my bad, my bad, my bad. Okay. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Jesus is saying, I'm coming to remove all guesswork about who the Father is. How? By watch me. Here's now how he did it. Okay, then we'll get into our message. Jesus revealed to us who God is. He removed the guesswork, not by explaining God, but by revealing him. Not by explaining God, but by revealing him. So again, let's back up through those three statements. Okay, because it's the foundation of everything I'm going to talk about. God became one of us and dwelt among us. Why? In order to show us who he is, who God is, and show us who we're called to be. And then number three, he did that not by preaching, not by explaining, but by revealing himself. Did you know? You may not have known this. There's a lot of things in the world today, a lot of things in Christianity today that we take for granted as always being there. You hear certain things today and you like, okay, this is just like common knowledge. This is like grade one Sunday school. Things that we just assume everybody knows. Things like God is love. God is love. How about if I say God loves everyone? Common knowledge. Like this is like easy stuff. Maybe you see this bumper sticker with all the, the lives matter stuff. You, hear, you see this bumper sticker that says all lives matter to God. Everybody matters to God. You've heard these things before. Every church preaches it. Every kid knows it. People who don't know anything about God know God is love. God loves all. And God, everyone matters to God. Everyone knows that, right? That's common knowledge. Well, did you know that before Jesus, this was not common knowledge? Did you know that Jesus is actually the one who introduced these concepts into the world? That before Jesus, there was no such thing as a personal God who cared about persons and people and little people and big people and tall people and short people and rich people and poor people. Before Jesus, the world believed in the gods and everything that happened was at the whims of the gods. This is why we talked about before, we talked about science. There was no science before Christianity because there was no need to study a world where it's just, what is that rumbling? That's not scientific. That's just the gods are angry with us. So people believed that the world was at the whims of the gods and basically gods didn't care about people. You just kind of stayed out the way of the gods. Gods used people to accomplish their purpose. So your job was like to cower in fear. And Jesus is actually the one who introduced the idea that you know what? God cares about people. God loves people. And this was revolutionary before Jesus. And I'm not just talking about people who didn't believe in God. Actually, even the people of the Old Testament, the Jewish people, the believers, the people who knew God. God tried to speak to them about his love and his mercy, but they didn't get it. The people before Jesus came, the world operated in two systems. It had a caste system and a karma system. Caste meaning like social classes. You had rich, you had poor. You had upper class, you had lower class. You had a religious, and then you had sinner. And everyone was born into a class, and you never, ever left your class. Whatever you were born with, that's kind of how you stayed, and you were there forever. There was only one exception of how you could go from one class to another. You know what it was? Karma. And karma meant, basically, that if you did something good, you'd be rewarded. If you did something bad, you would be punished. So therefore, if someone, you see someone is wealthy, you would say, the gods must be favoring that person. You would see someone who is sick, 
you would say either that person or their parents must have done something really bad because God is angry with them. This was how the world operated. So in this kind of environment, a message about compassion for the poor was ridiculous. Compassion for the poor? There was no such thing as compassion for the poor. What there was, was you got what you deserved. So let's help the poor. Why? They're getting what they deserve. Oh, the sick over there. Oh, they're just getting what they deserve. They must have done something bad. There was no such thing about caring about people or compassion because it was just a system of you got what was coming to you. You want to add on top of that, make it even worse? When Jesus was born into the Roman Empire, did you know it was a slave culture? Slavery was not only accepted, slavery was like here to stay. No one said anything about slavery. Everyone believed that slavery, that's the way to go. No one was saying civil rights. No one was saying human dignity. No one said that stuff. In fact, when Jesus came into the world in the first century, in the Roman Empire, there was more slaves than citizens. There was more people who were slaves than there was citizens. And in a culture of slavery, human dignity, human rights is laughed at. Because every single person who was born into a slave culture knew that I may be free today, but I am just one, bad, one step of bad luck away from being a slave. Because here I am, I'm free here today. If a neighboring tribe invaded my tribe, neighboring country, I could be a slave tomorrow. Ladies, if your husband dies and you have no way to support yourself, you have no family, you could be a slave tomorrow. If you get sick and no longer can work, you can be a slave. If you can't pay your debts, you could become a slave. If you're a child and your parents die, you could become a slave. So this idea of a value of every person and everyone matters, this did not exist when Jesus came into the world. That's why some people talk about secular humanitarian. Isn't that the right word? Secular humanitarian. That we don't believe in religion. We don't believe in Christianity. We just believe that we should help each other. You, Jesus is the one who taught that. So you can't actually believe in that without believing in Jesus because he's the first one who introduced that. Because before Jesus, nobody cared about nobody. The gods didn't care about people and people didn't care about people either. And then Jesus came. And Jesus said funny things. Like Luke 4, verse 18 to 21. Funny things Jesus said into that culture. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the, the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. What? You came for who, Jesus? The poor. Why? Who cares about them? I came for the broken. Why? I came for the captives. Wait, you mean the people that God is punishing? You came for them? Like Jesus. Who cares about them? Jesus was the first person to ever teach. Jesus was the first person to ever teach that people had intrinsic value, even if they didn't have economic value. That every single person mattered, even if they could not contribute to society and were actually a burden to society. Nobody believed that before Jesus entered into this world. You don't believe me? Let's look at some of the revolutionary teachings of Jesus. Just a sampling. Jesus said some things that when the people heard it, they must have been like, who is this crazy person? And actually, they said that. They said, Jesus, you're out of your mind. Some of the things that he taught. He taught a story of a good Samaritan. You know the story of a good Samaritan, right? A story where the hero is a bad guy. 
the hero is a bad guy. And the wicked person is the priest and the Levite. And Jesus made the priest and the Levite look bad so that the Samaritan, the enemy of God's people, the cursed people, was the hero. Not only did he do that, but when he told that story, he did something that actually we could use some help with today. He redefined for us the term neighbor. Okay, because he gave this story in relation to who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And people at that time, often like people today, if we're honest, people thought neighbor meant people who are like me. Neighbor means, I love my neighbor, means I love people who are like me. I love people who look like me, talk like me, same culture as me. And Jesus said, actually, no. Neighbor means anybody who's in front of you who's in need. That's your neighbor. You know, if they don't look like you. You know, they don't vote like you. You know, they don't think like you. You know, they're a completely different social class, culture, ethnicity, whatever. Your neighbor and these people were blown away. Jesus gave the story in Luke chapter 15 about three lost things. Lost coin, lost sheep, lost son. And basically when he told those three stories, his message was this. Is that a sinner is not someone that God chases down to punish, but he chases them down to save them. And then God is not interested in paying people back. He's interested in bringing people back, no matter what they've done, no matter how much of a crime they have committed. He told the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he preached about love your enemies. Love your enemies? Why in the world would anyone love their enemies? Why in the world would you do good to someone who doesn't do good to you? Why would you pray for those who hurt you? Like, we just kind of take these things for granted, but they did not take these things for granted. Jesus said these things are like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why would I pray for someone who hurts me? Why would I do good to someone who's hurting me? Jesus said, that's what I'm all about. Last one. We talked about the widow with the two mites. We talked about this last week. The one who gives the 10,000, the 20,000, the 30,000, all these rich people. These are the people whose society says, these are the godly people. These are the people that God is favoring. Jesus said, no, actually, that little lady over there, she's the real deal. She gave two pennies. That's just his teaching. If you want to know what someone really means when, they talk, when, when someone preaches, if you want to know what someone means when they preach, you see how they behave. You see their action. Well, look at some of the actions, or I should say interactions of Jesus. And some of the interactions of Jesus were absolutely mind-bogglingly crazy. Because at the time of Jesus, godliness was associated with cleanliness. And they had a very elaborate system of what was clean and unclean, what was allowable and unallowable. And you never, ever, ever risked your own cleanliness to do anything defiled. Jesus blew that stuff out the water. Jesus told the story of a Samaritan woman. One day by the well. And forget about all the stuff in the story that we know. And we know all the stuff, how beautiful and the gift, all that stuff. Let me just tell you something very simple. What did Jesus ask her for when he spoke to the Samaritan woman? He said, give me a drink. Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi, a distinguished man, is going to go to a Samaritan, dirty, defiled, and say, I want you to stick your dirty, defiled, stanky cup in that nasty Samaritan water and put it on my Jewish, pure lips. Yes because there's no such thing. That's what Jesus said. Jesus, one time, sick people, not one time, many times, Jesus would go to sick people, lepers, dead people. Jesus would not only touch dead people, not only touch lepers, Jesus would embrace them. And all the people would say, what is he doing? Does he not know that those people are cursed? The worst of the worst people in the land was the tax collectors. The people like Levi, people like Zacchaeus. People who were an embarrassment to the nation. 
Like if you talk about the wrong side of the political spectrum, that's these guys. Everyone said these are the worst of the worst and they had reason to do so because they were traitors against their own country. Well, Jesus not only would talk to them, not only would hang out with them, Jesus went out of his way to go to their parties. Jesus found a guy named Levi who eventually turned changed his name to Matthew, the gospel writer. And Jesus said to him, you come and follow me. And all the disciples were like, ah, like, okay, you can talk to him, but like, does he have to like join our group? Jesus said, actually, you know what? I got a better idea. Let's go to his house. And Peter's like, ah, we're going to go to his house. And he's like, like there's sin infested, like cooties. Like, I don't want to go to his house. But Jesus said, no, we're going to go to his house. Zacchaeus, the short little guy hiding up in the tree for his life because everyone hated his guts. Jesus said, you know what? We're going to go to his house too. And Peter must have been, and James and those guys must have been like, Jesus, don't you realize that mistakes that you're making and I think Jesus looked at them and said, don't you realize that God doesn't look at people the same way you do? Don't you realize that even the smallest, even the most sinner, even the most valueless to society has value to me? Last one, the centurion servant, a centurion, a Roman, a bad guy. The centurions are the ones who killed Jesus. They were the bad guys. And one of them came and said, Jesus, I need a favor. Jesus said, you got it. You name it. Jesus went out of his way to declare that the people that society said had no value have tremendous value to him. And his disciples, did they get it? Did they get the message? They absolutely got it. If you read in the book of Acts, what was the first dilemma that the church had in the book of Acts? The first dilemma in the book of Acts was in Acts chapter 6, where it said that we need to appoint a set of deacons. Why? Because we need Peter, John, James, the big dog apostles. Like, y'all, we need y'all to stop serving the widow's tables. Like, please, can somebody please give them a hand like someone else? Because these guys were like, we need y'all to preach. And they're like, but I just got to feed one more widow. And I just got to serve one more table. And they're like, guys, we need you to do something else. So we need somebody to come in and help. Because these guys will not stop serving the least of these. And you say, why would they do that? Because Jesus taught them the lesson. Because Jesus got on his stanky, or got on his knees and washed their stanky feet. And when he washed their feet and said, you go do like I do, he took away every single one of us and our excuse to not do as he did. He took away the excuse by washing their feet. And they learned the lesson. That's why I say early church. You want to know who the early church was? The early church that spread like wildfire to turn the world upside down. The early church. No strings attached love and compassion were the hallmarks of the early church. The early church spread like fire throughout the Roman Empire. Why? Not because of the great preaching. Not because they had better books. Not because they had cool uh, pictures on the walls. But because they had no strings love and compassion. No strings attached love and compassion. I was reading the other day. I love, by the way, one of the things that I'm just, if you want to like deepen your knowledge of the word of God, the Bible, let me, let me tell you, the best thing that you can do is when you, when, when you read about the historical context in which it was written. Because I'm telling you, a lot of things that we read in the scripture, we don't understand it. Because we're kind of taking like something that was written 2,000 years ago and applying it in our context today. But if you understand the context that was written, it really enriches. Enriches? Enriches. 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 Okay? Enriches your understanding of it. It's very powerful. I was reading the other day about the, about the Roman Empire, first century, and how they viewed abortion. Okay, and in the first century Roman Empire, abortion was not a crime. It was not seen as bad. It was not seen as anything negative at all. Why? Because kids were useless. They had no value for kids. And they were basically seen as, they're worthless. If you kill them, you kill them. If you don't, 
Like Christianity was the first one, again, just to show you, Christianity was the first one to say that every person, even a worthless child who has no value, an unwanted child who has no value, who has contributed nothing to society, who's still in his mother's womb, that child has intrinsic value made in the image of God. Christianity is the first one to say this. Before Christianity, the world did not say this. Roman Empire said, worthless, useless. And in fact, sometimes when people wouldn't do abortion because either they, they couldn't get the abortion done or they, you know, they didn't want you know, to do it that way, what they would oftentimes do is they would have the child and then they would put the child outside by a river or in a forest. And they didn't call it abortion. They didn't call it murder. They didn't call it killing their children. They called it leaving their children to their fate because they believed again in the gods. And if the gods favored this child, he would come back alive. But if the gods did not favor this child, he would get eaten by a bear or die of, of, of freezing. Yeah, you're saying that's awful. That's how they lived. Again, abortion to them was not seen as something bad. No one ever taught abortion was bad back then. And then Christians came into the picture. And Christians who did not have enough money to feed their own children would go out into the forest and take these children and raise them as their own. And you have so many stories about Christians saving these kids' lives. And you say, why would they do that? What value do these kids have? They had value because they were made in the image of God. And Christianity was the first one to say that the value of a person is not determined by society. The value of a person is determined by God. Or said another way. Here's our punchline for today. They said that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. Everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. This was the message of Jesus. This was the message of the early church. Now let's fast forward to the year 2012. 2012 comes around. God puts inside my heart and the heart of a small group around that you know what? God wants to start a church here in Arlington. And he wants this church to be a special place. A church like no other church in the history of the entire world. A church where there's limitless acceptance and no culture, no ethnicity, no nothing, no social class, no religious class, no like the spiritual people and the sinners, like limitless acceptance. And then not just limitless acceptance, but really authentic community. Like this is going to be a family, a family of people who we have depth in our relationship with one another. Not maybe depth with 300 people, but depth with a small group of people within there at least. And the center of our worship together, or the center of our life together is we're going to worship God. And when we worship God together, it's going to be transformational. It's not just going to be routine and going through the motions. It's going to be transformational worship. And then these group of people, we're not just going to stop after Sunday. We're going to go out into the world, and we're going to try to pursue God passionately. We're going to take our spiritual life seriously through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, with the goal of that we reach a level of Christ-like integrity, that we can say that as Christ is, that's what we're trying to be. And then we know the fruit of that. We're going to walk around with faith. People are going to say, horrible, the sky is falling. We're going to say, no, we believe in a big God, and we trust in that big God. We're going to be irrationally generous. And people are going to say, mine, 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 mine. And we're going to say, no, we give, we give, we give. Our hands are open. We're not taking, we're giving. We're going to use our talents and our gifts for the glory of God. We're not going to be consumers only. We're going to be contributors. And we're going to do our best to share this good news with others around us. But there was still one thing missing. That as amazing a church as that would be, as amazing a church as that would be, with those first nine core values, something would be missing. And this church will not be the body of Christ unless it embodies this point right here. That everybody matters to God whether God matters to them or not. 
and that we will reveal our mission and the mission of God, not by our teaching, but by our action. We're not going to come to Arlington to explain who God is, but to reveal who God is by our deeds. And in the same way that God became one of us and dwelt among us, we will become one of the community. We will dwell among the community, and we will show them that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not. Enter the Hope Association. When this church started back in 2012, one of the things that we did at the very start of the church, we opened a church, and we started a nonprofit organization. It's called the Hope Association. It's a legit 501c3 nonprofit organization, non-religious, community service, nonprofit organization. Why did we do that? We did that to be our face to the community. We wanted to have to make sure that we build into the fabric of our church. Not like, hey, let's do community service every now and then. Like, no, this is part of our existence. Like, we're going to factor in worship. We're going to factor in giving. We're going to factor in spiritual growth, fellowship. And we're going to factor in loving our community so that it's a part of our church. We started a separate nonprofit for this purpose. Why a separate nonprofit? Well, one of the things that I felt and we all felt together is that having an official nonprofit organization would give us, A, a higher accountability and transparency because it's a lot easier to be cynical towards churches. And people out there are cynical towards churches, always asking for money, always asking for money. So we felt if you had a 501c3, which is not maintaining the standards of us, but like the IRS, make sure that like everything is legit. Okay, we felt that would give us a higher level of transparency and accountability to match the cynicism that's out there. And I have some people are still cynical about what you can do, like you can do your best. Okay, but we felt people would be less cynical about a nonprofit versus a church organization. The other thing is we felt it would give us greater visibility. It would give us a chance to reach out to people as volunteers, okay, and also donors from outside the community who may be hesitant towards a church but love to contribute towards a nonprofit. In addition, just my personality, I like things clean. Okay, I like, like I like everything to be like in clean buckets. So I don't like like okay, like mixing. No, like each I like buckets. Okay, the waffles, the, the boxes. Okay, the purpose. This is what I wrote down. I put it down right here. This is something that I wrote before the church ever started. We said we're going to have a nonprofit organization. Why? I wrote the purpose is to significantly impact the community around us. Then I put in parentheses, make waves. That's the purpose to significantly impact the community around us, parentheses, to make some waves. Because I felt like Jesus made waves. And Jesus showed up in Galilee, and boom, everyone knew like something special is going on around, around, on around here. And that's our purpose as well with Hope Association. When we started, what are we going to do? We're going to feed the homeless. We're going to do a soup kitchen. We're going to do a blanket. Like, what are we going to do? So we said, Instead of showing up like here we are, like the big, bad, mighty church has been here for 15 minutes and say, this is how we're going to save the community here and like all the great things we're going to do. We said, hey, you know what? Let's ask. Like, let's not reinvent the wheel. And let's not think that we have like the, the market cornered. Let's go to the community and let's ask them, how can we work with you? Like, what do you need from us? Like, we have no agenda. We don't have anything that we want to do. We have no expertise. But we know that there's great stuff happening here in Arlington. There's great organizations who do great stuff how can we assist you? Like, how can we partner with you instead of just doing things on our own? We went to government officials, leaders in the, in the community, and we asked. And we basically found two main areas that became like our target, like our niche. We found schools 
and we found healthcare. And we basically narrowed that down so our niche, our kind of area that we kind of focus on is about children in need. What do I mean by children in need? Well, I got some, some statistics here for you. This is just a sampling of some of the stuff we've done in the past five years through Hope Association. Did you know that your church, through Hope Association, 75 at-risk students are mentored through the Hope Mentor Program. And what this is, this is a partnership with a local public school, elementary school here in Arlington, Randolph. And they, part, with, through a partnership with them, we have a mentorship program for at-risk youth. What does at-risk mean? I wanted to, in case you didn't know what that means, the, 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 they define at-risk this way. Adolescents who are less likely to transition successfully to adulthood and economic self-sufficiency. That's what at-risk means. Someone who is less likely to transition to adulthood and economic self-sufficiency. Could be economic reasons, could be behavioral reasons, could be emotional, like whatever it is. County determines them at risk. Through this program, we mentor them in a one-on-one, -on -one, investing in them kind of way. And 75 at-risk kids have been invested in by your church through this program. And just to show you what the meaning of this is, we were recently, not too long ago, we were at a com local community center here in Arlington. We were talking about like opportunity to like rent space from them. Didn't work out, but when we were kind of explaining what we do, we mentioned like, oh, you know, we do some things in the community. We mentioned this mentorship program. And the guy was like, really? That's you? I've heard about this great work that you guys do. Thank you for what you do in the community. And to me, that's what it's all about. That's a wave. We just made a wave. And that guy, who may be cynical towards anything or may not know what orthodox is or may think that I'm like a terrorist in training. We made a wave, okay? And we made an impact with that guy through this mentorship program. The second thing, 478 gifts to kids with cancer and blood disorders from Children's Hospital in Inova through our Thrill of Hope holiday party. That's what Mark was talking about earlier. It's one of the best events we do of the entire year. Every year, we throw a holiday party. It's free of charge to all the patients from Inova and Children's Hospital and the cancer and the blood disorders. We don't ask anything. We don't ask anything. All we do is we give. Uh, we just show them the time of their life. There's like the talent show, there's the Santa comes, like they have the time of their life. And if you've never participated in this, you are missing out. And I, I'm telling you, just come this one day and you will understand what it means by it is more blessed to give than to receive. And we just give and we just show love and it's one of the best events that we do. Next, 1,200 meals roughly and hygiene kits have been served to homeless community in Franklin, Franklin Square, that's DC, through a program that we do called Love Your City. Of all the programs we do, this is the only one that like we do. Meaning all the rest, like I said, we partner with iNova, we partner with Children's, we partner with the elementary school. This is the only one that we kind of do on our own. And this is basically, we go downtown, this is, it started as a once a year, now it's become a once a month thing. That we go downtown and we just show the people that everybody matters to God, whether God matters to them or not and we give food, and we give hygiene kits. We actually expanded not too long ago, and we started doing like resume building, okay? And like helping people to build a resume so it's not just give a sandwich, but hopefully help them to be able to provide their own sandwich one day. And this is a great, great, great chance for us to say, you know what? I don't care who you are or what your situation or what your story is. You matter to God. And if the whole world, if you don't matter to the government, or you don't matter to your parents, or you don't matter to your family, you matter to God. And let us be the messenger to say that. Last but not least, 2,000 projected children, project, this is a projection, to receive health screenings in Anacostia in 2018 through what will be launched on January 2nd, which is the Mobile Health Clinic. And this is, for those who remember last year, a guy named Levi, a member of our church, 
ran across America. Not flew across America, not drove across America, but ran across America on foot to raise money to retrofit an RV to be able to be used as a mobile health clinic. And God willing, it's going to open on January 2nd. And it's going to serve approximately 2,000 people in the coming year. 2,000 children who will probably without health care will receive health screenings. Is that good stuff or what? Let me ask you this. Of all these things that I just mentioned, and this is just, I'm just kind of highlights. How many times have you heard me come up here and ask for money for any of these things? How many times have you seen a collection plate go around for any of this stuff? You don't see any of that stuff. Not that this doesn't cost money. Where's the money for this come from, you ask? You know where the money for this comes from? The money for this comes from the church. Because as I last week said, you, 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 and me, as a, as a member of the church, it is our duty to tithe. I believe the church should tithe as well. And I believe that 10% of the church's income should go back into the community. And I believe that's kind of how everything works. That I make a lot of money, and I give 10% to the church. And you make a lot of money, you give 10% to the church. And then church makes a lot of money, and the church gives 10% back into the community. So the church doesn't just keep its money in its pocket and say, we want a big building, we want whatever. The church says, we want to impact the community. And the way we do that is through Hope Association. Because one of the things that I believe, I love this quote by St. Teresa of Avila. Okay, She said the following. She said, Christ has no body on earth but yours. No hands but yours. No feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. Yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. I tell you all that stuff that we're doing right here, not to show off, not to say look at us, but to show you the importance of genuine love for the community, and it will always be a part of who we are as a church. I believe, in wrapping up this series, I believe, and I hope you believe too, that Jesus expected a lot of his followers 2,000 years ago. He didn't expect them just to lead marginally better lives. He challenged them to live radically different. Radically different in the way they looked at their fellowship. Radically different in the way they approached worship. Radically different in how they looked at maturity and growth and how they looked at what was in their pockets. And radically different about how they looked at people who were different than them who were outside. And I believe that he calls us to that same radically different lifestyle. This is how we practice it, through these 10 core values. What does it mean to be a member of this church? This is what it means to be a member. What does it mean to be a, 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 a part of this family? This is what it means to be a part of this family. We will live radically different lives, not marginally different, because that's who Jesus called us to be. You agree with the sentence I'm about to say. The world today needs to know that our faith is not just limited to one hour on Sundays. Our faith is not just limited to what we do in our quiet times. That who we are as a church is not just this inside these walls, protected from the cold elements outside. The world needs to know that our faith is not something to be explained, but something to be demonstrated. And it's to be demonstrated by our lives that are radically different. Jesus challenged his disciples not to talk about giving, but to give. Not to come to be served, but to serve. Not selfish, but selfless. He lived that way. He challenged them to. That's how our ancestors live. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how we will live as a church family as well. Why? Because I would love this to be true about us, and so do you.
while we may be questioned for what we believe, we should be embraced for how we love. How's that sound? While we may be questioned by the community for what we believe, that's fine with us. We should be embraced for how we love. And that is what being a member of this church is all about. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the church that you planted right here, Lord, for all the people that you've sent to be a part of it. I pray, Lord, that you would put inside all of us these ten core values, and that you would, like, ingrain them inside of us, that this would become, like, like the fabric of who we are, not just words that we talk about on Sunday, but you would help us to live these things out. Help us to show this world that everybody matters to you, even if you don't matter to them. Give us like a radically different way of viewing the world and the people in the world, the people who are different than us and who don't agree with us. But give us a radically different way of viewing them, Lord, the same way that you looked at us and taught us to look at others. We pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the prayers of all of your saints. Here, as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.